This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Mission Log A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast. Episode 191 The Host. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, well, Ken Ray's host, Ken Ray. And I'm your other host, well, John Champion's host, John Champion. Each week, we look at an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the episode stands the test of time. This week, the host. Hey, that's me. And you. Yeah, right. Right, but but I mean also that this episode is called The Host. Ah. In a moment, I'm going to bring you a little bit of trivia to the table, but first... But first, I'm going to tell you how to reach us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. You can give us a call, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website where you can leave other comments is missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, on to matters trivial. All right. Today's episode was written by Michel Horvat. Now, not a common name for Star Trek viewers, but his story is really interesting related to this episode. His first production credit is on a low-budget horror movie, and this is his only professional writing credit. Now, some years later, though, he produced and directed a documentary called We Are Dad about a gay couple who adopted kids who were HIV positive. And today, to this very day, he is a marriage and family therapist. So um, not a uh, not a professional writer, but he is, in fact, the person who provided this story. And um, I found it very interesting that he has this sort of uh, wide range of uh, of interests and uh, and continues to work as a therapist. I thought that was very cool. Now, the original storyline, though, was actually all about negotiations. Literally just all about negotiations. There's no romantic angle with Beverly. That came much later and a good choice there. Now, this episode is directed by Marvin Rush, and we have talked about Marvin Rush and what a fanboy I am of his work as a cinematographer. This is the first episode of Star Trek that he directed, actually his first ever professional directorial credit. Uh, he goes on to direct a few more Star Trek episodes and other series, as well as Hell on Wheels and Turn, but you will see him most frequently behind the camera as director of photography. Now, he started out as a lowly camera operator on WKRP in Cincinnati, then shot episodes of shows like Dear John and the pilot for the TV version of Ferris Bueller before making his way up to be a DP. Now, a little note here about our regular cast. Gates McFadden, as we mentioned before, was pregnant during much of the production of season four. Well, here we are with a show that was filmed in mid-March of 1991 and aired in May of 1991. She gave birth to her son, James, in June of 1991. So much of Marvin Rush's work on this episode revolved around shooting around Gates to hide her pregnancy in an episode that heavily features Gates. Hmm. Now, we have uh, a little bit of a reference to a previous episode. We have uh, the Tycan's Rift. Well, Picard is reading about it on his computer before talking to Odon in his ready room. You might remember the Tycan's Rift from Night Terrors. Well, that graphic that represented that we actually see on Picard's computer. And we have a mention here of the shuttlecraft Hawking, named after, of course, a famous physicist, Stephen Hawking. This is the same shuttlecraft set used before in Coming of Age. This is the larger of the shuttlecraft sets. Now, we have a few guest stars that I'd like to talk about. We have Barbara Tarbuck as Governor Treon. She has many TV appearances on shows from MASH to Quincy M.E. to Police Squad. And certainly don't forget Quantum Leap, L.A. Law, The New Twilight Zone, and, of course, 
moonlighting for you, Ken. So we'll be talking about her again later. Yes, we will. Yeah, <laughs> she's been in movies like Short Circuit and the 2004 Walking Tall. Uh, in recent years, she has made guest appearances on Mad Men and had a recurring role on American Horror Story. Suffice to say, she has a massive resume and is constantly working. We will actually talk about her again, not just for the Moonlighting podcast, but she'll be back for an episode of Star Trek Enterprise. Now, we also have Nicole Orth Palavicini as Odon number two, that is uh, Kirill Odon. And she got her start in soap operas and was a regular in All My Children, Jump to Loving and One Life to Live. She also shows up in Law and Order, Jake and the Fat Man, and the movie Sliver. Finally, we have Frank Lutz, who plays Odon number one. Well, the first one we meet anyway. Uh, he got his start in the theater in the 1970s and then moved on to soap operas with a regular role on The Doctors. Guest appearances followed on shows like Remington Steel, Hunter, The Facts of Life, Baywatch, Jag, and The A-Team. And he appeared in the movie When Harry Met Sally and Don Juan DeMarco. Now, I found it interesting that in his theater career, he was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for playing the sadist dentist Oren Sprevello in Little Shop of Horrors. Get ready for an incredibly exciting episode of The Next Generation. It is absolutely thrilling. Prologue. Dr. Crusher's personal log, doing some medical work, got a letter from Wesley, who isn't doing so well in ancient philosophies class. Ugh, he's such a disappointment. But so what? There's someone new in Beverly's life. Let's not waste any time here with coy flirting. Cut straight to making out in the turbo lift. It's Beverly and Ambassador Odon, who clearly excels at personal diplomacy. Interrupting them is Data, who has some details about the Peliarzel moons that these two should be studying when they're not locked in an embrace. No problem. Odon fakes a headache while Beverly brushes off Data onto a computer to input his... Um, Data. The plan is to have the two lovebirds rendezvous in Odon's quarters later, but when he's alone, Odon looks in the mirror, studying intently the growth inside him, pushing away at his stomach. Act 1. Afterglow time. Dr. Crusher and Odon are straightening up after spending some time together. She's got to get back to work, and he's got some time to kill since he can't prepare any more for negotiating with the Peliarzel piece until the Enterprise arrives at their destination. Guess what? We're almost here. Welcome to Peliarzel, and welcome to the Federation representative, Governor Leka Trion, who has come aboard with some bad news. Let's set the stage. Generations of settlers have left Peliarzel to inhabit the two moons, Alpha and Beta. Odon's father, decades ago, helped quell any infighting. But there's a new threat to the peace. Alpha Moon has figured out a way to use the magnetic field of the planet as a power source, which is all well and good, except for the fact that it is causing serious climate change on Beta Moon. The Alphans won't budge, and that will kill the Betans. At an impasse, both sides preparing for war. As they're getting closer, Odon says he will take a shuttle to the planet, definitely not beamed down, as Picard suggested, even though it's not safe, what with the infighting so he can meet with representatives from both sides. With everyone out of the room, Deanna confides in Picard that there's something weird about Odon. His emotions are unpredictable and kind of all over the place. Picard says there's so little about the Trill, oh, that's what he is, that they know. Later in the Enterprise Beauty Salon, Deanna walks in on Beverly, who seems a bit out of place. She's not a regular here, and this time she's soaking in it. Here's a good rule of thumb. Don't try to lie to an empath. Dana's aware. Everyone is aware. Dr. Crusher is in love. But how well does she know Odon? Well enough to know that she likes the way she feels with him. Before his mission to Peliarzel, Picard meets with Odon. Odon says he works on instinct. It's less about going in with a strategy, but the Enterprise staff has been very helpful in providing background information, especially that Dr. Beverly Crusher. In fact, Odon wants to know if Picard has any inkling that Beverly might be interested in leaving Starfleet. Um, 
Well, before awkward can get even more awkward, the call comes that Odon's shuttle is ready. When he arrives in the shuttle bay, Riker is there to pilot, and Beverly is there to see them away. Odon has even brought a rose, a customary gesture of love among Earthlings, he has learned. With the shuttle away, in mere seconds, an unidentified ship from one of the moons approaches and opens fire. One hit knocks out part of the shuttle systems and injures Odon. When Picard orders that the two beam back to the Enterprise, Odon refuses, saying that the transporter will kill him. Riker pilots them manually, but Odon has got to get to sickbay fast. He's alive, but barely. His body is acting strangely, with his metabolic processes all over the map. It's as if a parasite is at work, and that is precisely what is going on. That parasite in Odon's stomach is Odon. Act 2. The host body has died. After Odon could say goodbye to Beverly, but not before it could tell Quaid to start the reactor. With the parasitic life form, the symbiont, in stasis, the Trill are sending another host body, which will reach the Enterprise in some 40 hours. It's too late. The negotiations must continue, and Odon will need to be placed in another host body within an hour or two to survive. Data offers, but his circuitry is a bad match. Riker steps up, though. He's willing to take the risk. It is, after all, his business. He'll play host to Odon since it is a far better option than allowing total war to break out among Peliarzel. Procedure is messy, but a success. The Odon symbiont makes a new home in Riker's gut, and Riker is taking it about as well as a human body can be expected to now host an alien being, which is to say not entirely well. His heart rate and blood pressure are fluctuating, his brain functions erratic, but then things seem to level off. Beverly asks Will how he's doing, but the answer that comes back is a little more familiar than First Officer has with the Doctor. It's Riker's voice, but the words are Odon's, telling Dr. Beverly that she looks tired. Act 3. Odon, in the body of Riker, now addresses Governor Trion. She must convince the delegates that this person in front of her is Odon, even if he looks different. In fact, decades ago, it was the same Odon, not his father, in a different host body who brokered their peace. She'll do what she can. Riker's host body isn't doing too well. Humans weren't made for this kind of interaction, and it's time for Odon to get some rest. Beverly attends to Odon, and she's a little cold, feeling hurt by Odon not being entirely upfront with her about who he is. It looks like Riker, but again, the words are Odon's. He's still the same person who fell in love with her. Later in 10 Forward, Beverly is joined by Deanna. Beverly tells a story about a schoolgirl crush on a boy, Stefan, who never even knew she existed. It was all a child's fantasy of what it meant to be in love. Now she's dealing with the feeling of loss and that she fell in love with a version of Odon that is no longer Odon. Now he's in the image of Will Riker, someone she sees as a colleague, not a romantic partner. She wishes this whole thing had never happened, and just then Odon walks into Ten Forward as well. Beverly can't even face him, but Deanna tells the story of missing her father and what she wouldn't do to feel his embrace again. Beverly has to accept that this is what Odon looks like now and should go to him. Act 4. Riker's body isn't doing too well with Odon inside, but they'll have to rally just enough to greet the delegates from Peliarzel's Alpha and Beta Moons. He doesn't look like what they expected, but Odon knows the inside information about the last round of talks, the Beta representative's aunt who spoke for them, and the Alpha representative who is here now, Kalen Trose. It was a clever strategy back then, getting a representative from each side to live with the other for a week to gain new perspective. Kalen is impressed but skeptical still until Odon reveals the little-known plot that would have assassinated the Beta delegate, uncovered by Kalen himself. With his identity approved, the delegates agree to at least think about it. The deadline is eight hours. Beverly is doing what she can to keep Riker's body healthy enough. His body is rejecting the foreign organism inside, and an immunosuppressant with some painkillers will help. For now. Beverly is still having trouble accepting Odon in this form, and she shies away when he tries to touch her. The talks are on, again, tentatively, in the meantime, Picard informs Odon that the new body is on its way. He'll just have to make do until then. In her quarters, Beverly has a cup of tea, contemplating the rose Odon gave to her, until she is compelled to check with Odon. 
The awkward business talk only goes so far until the two find themselves in a passionate embrace. Act 5. The peace talks are about to start, and the stakes are high. Each side is amassing troops while Odon's health is failing more rapidly. He agrees to work through the meetings, but then he tells Beverly that he must be removed from Riker's body at the end, even if the new host body has not arrived. It's not fair to Riker. Okay, it's showtime. The delegates are ready, and as Odon leaves, Picard expresses his deep concern for Beverly, regardless of the outcome. Hope you weren't expecting a blow-by-blow of deep-level moon negotiations. The talk, after six hours, are done. War is averted, but Odon collapses on the bridge. The worst news is that the Trill have been held up, and it will be another nine hours before they can rendezvous with the Enterprise. Get those representatives off the ship. Time to take the Enterprise to Warp 9 to intercept the Trill vessel. Meanwhile, Beverly has given her word to remove Odon from Riker. Riker will be all right. As for Odon, he's under glass, in stasis again, and he'll be fine for now. The host had better arrive soon, though. A few hours later, the Trill host arrives, escorted by Worf. This time the host is a she, not a he, and that gives Beverly a moment of pause. The procedure is a success. And Odon, in a brand new female body, comes in to talk to the doctor, expressing deep gratitude and, yes, the sincere love he had for her before. As for Beverly, she just can't even. She can't keep up with these changes. What if this host doesn't last either? Or what about the one after that? She says she can't live with the uncertainty and that perhaps someday our ability to love won't be so limited. Odon rises to leave, but before that kisses Beverly's hand and says she will never forget her. The end. Boy, the personal log's really personal, huh? Yeah, you have to wonder how much of that is regulation. (laughs) Yeah, dear personal log, uh, Wesley, by the way, I I worry about your future children. I don't know if you plan to have any. I think you don't, but I worry about them if you do. Well, because, uh, I mean, she actually led off with, Wesley is top of his class in something. But he's mm-hmm. having problem with this other thing, and your recap yeah. began. Boy, Wesley sucks at this one thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's dude. the impression that I got. You know, Wesley is the top of his class, but she's like, oh, really? It does that need to be in a personal log because it's going to be on a report card? Well, she just, I, I, I felt her disappointment. I'm not talking. See, I did not hear her disappointment at all. I think she no. was just saying, here's what's happening with my son. He's doing great in this one thing. He's doing not so well in this other thing. But Daddy Champion comes in and he's like, well, my son stinks at this one thing. <laughs> How's he doing the other stuff? Who cares about the other stuff? Did I mention where he sucks? Yeah. yeah. He's, it, it, Wesley is special. Okay. So we have to make sure that we hold him to that standard. Here's he's the other very thing. Very special. Okay. But going back. So, so uh, like I, I've talked on this show before. I journal. Okay. Yeah. That's for nobody but me. Right. Is the personal log a requirement of Starfleet or is this like where your boss hands you a smartphone and you start using it for everything, even though it's really for business? Mm. Are you required to keep a personal log? And if you are, is it really a personal log at that point? Right. And would you not leave out the fact, oh, there's a new person on the uh, on the ship and I'm like totally, you know, happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes several times a day. It's it's in the Enterprise computer, I have to assume. Yeah. All of that is in the Enterprise computer. Right. Yeah. And, and even if it's locked, um, I still feel like if you learned anything from Jordi LaForge and Leah Brahms, yep. that information is just a step away from being opened up to create an avatar. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It might solve things, actually. It might. It might. Um, I, I do have to say that it, Beverly and Odon's infatuation, it, it actually plays out really nicely and in a non-cheesy way. It yeah. is kind of fun. Yes. Yeah, it, I, have, it, I have no problem with their relationship in this episode. Yeah, it, it, it feels adult and it feels real and I like it. And it's you know? neat to see Gates McFadden get to do something. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, by the way, we don't talk politics on this show, so don't say global warming. Um, uh, Unless it's in the context of science fiction, then it's okay. Um, So, yes, they're having global warming. In a weird Uh, way. Yeah, yeah, it is a weird way. Yeah, not in the way you normally think about people getting global warming, if people actually do, which, of course, is debatable. I said don't say global warming. (laughs) By some people. I I didn't. You you started it. (laughs) Just to say don't to say it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hello, I must be going. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought the uh, the way that the uh, what what's the name of the planet that the moons are around? 
Peliarzel. Peliarzel, okay. Lovely place in the summer. First of all, they should not have named the moons Alpha and Beta. Or once people started going there, they shouldn't have named them Alpha and Beta, because that's just going to lead to a fight. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I would come up with different names, you know, yeah. names from their pantheons, you know, if they have mm-hmm. any, or names of their top celebrities, maybe, mm. whatever. But, you yeah. know, you say Alpha and you say Beta, and you're pretty much itching for a fight. Yeah. What I thought was I, really I, interesting about Billy Arzell, though, is they say you know, that the, the, the governor says, we try to help them settle their arguments by not taking sides, but this time we are at a loss. Just so I'm clear. We try to help by not doing anything, but right. that hasn't worked. So now we don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah, because we tried doing nothing, and now we may have right. to do something. Right, right. But we don't know it's, what. It's a really good strategy. Um, <laughs> well, usually. Yeah, if you didn't learn from this episode, it's a yeah. very good strategy. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the spa, by the way, the Enterprise has a spa. Yeah. Uh, which looks a lot like the barbershop. I assumed it was the barbershop. Yeah, well, we're redressed. Salon, yeah. let's say. Salon, yeah. yeah. Um, but it definitely a bit of a throwback to that workout conversation that Deanna and Dr. Crusher had during the price yes. about Deanna's love life. Yes. So kind of nice that they, they share this bond, um, and certainly not as awkward as the uh, the workout scene. No, not, not nearly. No, no. But what I really liked, I really liked their conversation in 10 Forward. Yeah. Um, I thought that was quite good, and it, it felt very personal, and and meant just another moment for Gates to really shine in that role. Yeah, what's funny though yeah. is I really thought, you know, when they were talking about it, and then Deanna got up and came around the table, mm-hmm. I thought she was going to say, "Touch Will Riker, and I will cut you." Yeah, right. <laughs> there is something a little weird about that. <laughs> she came yes. around the table, and I was like, yeah, "I know that's yeah. not the way this is going to go, but boy, does it look like it's that's the way it's going to go." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the first officer's body is sort of disposable to Deanna. Speaking of which, so are first officers apparently in this oh, episode because yeah. Will's yeah. like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll fly the shuttle through, you know, what can end up mm-hmm. being a war zone. That's no problem at all. And you know, if Picard tried that, Riker would be like, you know, holding a knife to his own throat, going, "You leave, and I'll do it." Right. You know. Right. But no, it's right. like Will wants to go. And he's like, yeah, well, "Okay, fine." And then he's like, um, "I'll go through this radical procedure that might leave me dead." Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking this would have been a great chance for some, you know, potato peeling something or other below decks to get a little FaceTime up above, right? Maybe. Or, you know what? Just bring back Simon Tarsus. That guy needs something to do. I can't remember even who that is now. Uh, from the drumhead. From that, the that, drum poor, head. that poor one quarter. Oh, that's kid. right. That's right. Yeah. Simon Tarsus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's had enough screen time. Seriously, dude, I'm looking to get above decks, okay? Or you. (laughs) I'm fine if it's you as well. All right, fine. Fine. As long as you come back and tell me stuff. And if either of us dies, you know, that's like what? uh, So like uh, 10,099 people, any Mm -hmm. one of whom could peel potatoes. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Um, There's a moment where uh, Picard asks the computer what time it is. Huh. Yeah, and they're on the bridge, and the computer, what time is it? And it's like, you know, 1733 or whatever. And I thought, if only, if only they were on the Enterprise during Star Trek Six. there's literally a clock everywhere you look. <laughs> That's true. You cannot move without seeing a clock. Yeah, they got a good deal on those. Yeah, they did. I'm guessing did. the set designers or the set decorators or whatever they're called, the props people. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, oh, and, and by the way, I didn't mention that in the in the spa salon slash barbershop. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's the deal with Bolian barbers? Is that the only thing they're known for? We've only met another Bolian in a different context one other time, mm-hmm. but every other Bolian since then has been a barber. Well, you see, I assume that this was the same barber that was giving Jordy grief. That's why I thought it was actually the same barber shop or the same oh, you know, salon. No. Or different, uh, different bullion. You gotta, you gotta know your bullion. How do you know it's a different bullion? He's like blurry it's, in the background. Well, he's a blurry bullion. The other bullion <laughs> is a non-blurry bullion. True. He was sharp. He was yeah. like 1028p <laughs> or yeah. 1080p. Excuse 1080p. me. 1080p. He, was, he yeah. was pretty good. All right, I'll give you that. Yeah. Hey, here's yeah. a dumb thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not really so dumb, I don't think, but it's kind of dumb. I get stuck on the tech stuff. I don't know if you know this about me. Uh, I found myself wondering about privacy on the Enterprise and how privacy settings might be tricked. So, like in Act 4, Odon asks the computer... Is it Odon or Odan, by the way? It's Odon, right? I think it's Odon. It's like Udon. Yeah, yeah. But different. Only different. Yeah, Yeah. okay. 
unless somebody else says Odan, in which case nobody bats an eye. So on Act 4, Odan asks uh, the computer for the location of Dr. Beverly Crusher, and the computer tells him. And what I'm wondering is, does the computer know that it's telling Odon at that point, or does it assume that it's telling Riker? And then I had to wonder, okay, is that just like a rank thing? Like, if Riker said, where's Captain Picard, would the computer be like, you see, because he outranks you, so maybe I can't tell you? Whereas mm. if some guy peeling potatoes says, hey, hey, where's Captain Picard? I mean, they way wouldn't tell us then. I mean, I, yeah. I could find out where you are, and that's about it. Here's what I was actually thinking about. So let's say it was Reg Barkley. Yeah. Reg hadn't found his respite in the holodeck, right? And so instead, he's fixating on and eventually stalking the real Counselor Troy. Do, mm-hmm. they, do they have a thing where she can choose to share or with whom she shares? Or is it a hierarchy thing? Or are we all good because mm. we all have communicators? Mm. It just struck me as odd that you know this, this alien entity, granted, sounding and looking exactly like Riker. But right. not, but not in Riker's quarters at that point. They're like, "Oh, take the ambassador back to his quarters." Okay, which ones are those? Because yeah, know, the clothes in his quarters won't actually fit him. We may need to drop by Riker's place and get something that will. Yeah, I, I wondered about that too because I noticed that um, early on, Odon had his own communicator, and I figured, yes. well, the computer is tracking him by that. So when Odon goes into Will Riker's body, they take Riker's communicator badge away and they stick on Odon so then the computer knows, okay, this, at least this communicator badge belongs to Odon, not Riker. But as soon as Riker talks, and we know that the computer can recognize voice, right? Um, then that presents a little bit of a problem. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. I didn't know exactly how that would work, but uh, but they they figured it out. They clearly they did. <laughs> they got it completely worked out. Okay. Except um, for the part where the computer's just telling this random guy where everybody is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. Um, so we meet the Trill in this episode. We will, of course, see more of them in Star Trek yet to come. What? Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe. Right. But, but for now, it's an interesting idea of a uh, symbiotic relationship. And, and I wonder, just as you kind of got stuck on the uh, the privacy issue with the Enterprise computer, I kind of got stuck on who these hosts are. Mm-hmm. Because it, at least when you put a trill in a human body, well, the, the human entity sort of goes away. Yeah. Will Riker is a sort of asleep. But here is a walking, talking, bipedal humanoid being that showed up saying, hey, I'm ready for my trill implant. I'm ready for my symbiont. Mm-hmm. Well, what did that person do before they got there? Did they go to school? Did they, <laughs> you know, did they have a husband or a wife? Did they, uh, yeah. did, did, did they do very well at ancient philosophies when they were in school? <laughs> what happens to that mind when you've got a little Odon living inside of you? So um, I've got three words for you on this. Okay. Renew, renew renew oh i actually did wonder if it was the resolution for the host which i don't think it really necessarily is because i don't think when you get to 30 or 21 or whatever the age 60 Mm -hmm. definitely not 60 in this case but Mm -hmm. i i I did wonder about that myself like who is this person and do they get to or is this a person and do they get to the time where they have to be you know become the host and say well had a good life everybody gather around because next time you see me no you won't yeah you know, right. I, right. I did love, though, like the explanation when when Riker body is standing up there mm-hmm. uh, saying the man they knew as my father, the man who stands before them. Uh, both are merely meat puppets. <laughs> right. Don't worry right. about don't worry about them. They're just a, yeah. you know, whatever. I will say, though, the symbiont very colorful. Oh, yeah. In yeah. places. Mm-hmm. And and also looks a tremendous amount like the thing that Khan put in Chekhov's here in Wrath of Khan. A little bigger. In but fact, yeah, well, I, and again, I wondered if, like, you know, left to their own devices, would the thing on SETI Alpha 5 have evolved into the Trill? Hmm. Or, or did it? Like, would, mm-hmm. the, would the Trill look at that and go, oh, man, can you, can you believe that's actually what we were? Yeah. yeah. But, but scientists so, know. They found the fossils. So they're really just very pleasant intellectual beings. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You wouldn't want to have a chimpanzee over for dinner right now. So I, I don't know. I, I, I might. You, you don't know how I like <laughs> right. to eat. Yeah. Oh, you, you go right ahead. Yeah. Um, oh, you mentioned Renew 
Yeah. And it made me think that the uh, the laser scalpel that Beverly uses, she cuts open Riker and then uses that thing to sort of seal him up and there's no scar. I thought of Logan's Run. Uh, mm. It was a great thing in the uh, the new you, for those of you who haven't seen it, the, the plastic surgery center knew you and they use kind of the same idea. Hey, look, we can cut you open and we can seal you right back up. It's pretty good. Um, what should... Troy think about Beverly's conundrum with Riker. You, you, you know, we're saying it for a moment there. Yeah, he's owed on all right. So do whatever you want with that body for now. <laughs> right. For now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what I actually found myself thinking, because Riker's apparently going to have no memory. Or we don't mm-hmm. know that. And, and I doubt they're ever going to talk about it again. Maybe they will. I hope they yeah. will. I doubt they will. I, I, I will. I would want to talk to somebody about it. Yeah. If, for a couple of days, I was not me, and I had a thing living inside me that was pulling the strings of the, the meat puppet. Pull the strings! Pull the strings! <laughs> no. I, what I'm thinking, though, is like, so I just would like to know if Riker actually remembers anything. Let's address that if we could. Because here's the other thing, and, and mm-hmm. I made the joke last week about how Timison, you see, Timison was going to see everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beverly, from now on, yeah. knows about Riker. And she doesn't oh, yeah. know, she may not know technique, she may not know form. She may not know what he says yeah. or even the faces he makes, but on a very real level, yeah, yeah, she she's got an idea of what's going on. She's she's a doctor. She's <laughs> she's seen it all. She's seen it all. She's seen everything. And she already <laughs> cut him open. So yeah, okay, yeah. But but seriously though, uh, what a nice tender scene between Picard and Beverly. Yeah. Um, they just sort of skirt that line about their relationship and their feelings for each other. And in a show that is full of great adult moments, I think that's one of the best. Um, we talked before about uh, the, the Picard-Beverly relationship and how Patrick Stewart had written that in a memo to Gene Roddenberry to say, hey, we sort of always played it like we had this relationship, so... How do we explore that? Can this be explored down the road for these characters? And I thought this put kind of a nice button on it without hitting you over the head. Interested in a deeper understanding of the episode, the host? You are soaking in it. And I said before that uh, there are a couple of words that uh, that we really shouldn't dive too deeply into uh, global warming, which I won't say because we don't want to talk about that on this show. Um, But I did find that there was an interesting other kind of present day political topic here. People unwilling to give up certain sources of energy, even if there's a detrimental effect on others. Fortunately, again, there's nothing topical or, or political here. So we can move on without comment. Right. Sounds good. Okay, great. So let's talk about what this episode was really about. <laughs> <laughs> really? You're going you're gonna to leave it there, really? Well, I mean, I don't know how much more of it there is to say. I, okay. I think that the Star Trek put a – they were able to boil down a problem into just a few sentences and yes. say, hey, you see where this planet is going? <laughs> you see what their problems are? This is created by the people who are there, and now they're about to kill each other over it. Let me ask you a Um, question. When you say mm -hmm. that the original episode was going to be all about negotiation, was it going to be all about negotiation showing this kind of fight? I mean, I think back to, like, we we call, we, not you and I, but people call Mm -hmm. Star Trek IV the Save the Whales movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not entirely a Save the Whales movie. I mean, certainly there's the there's the whole thing with Jillian. There's the there's the uh, Spock coming back to himself. There's a tremendous amount of comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, it it seemed to have an eco message because if we don't keep, take care of the environment or take care of the things, if we're not good stewards, let's say, mm-hmm. of the planet and the things that live on it, uh, we're going to die. Yeah, I mean, it's really what Star Trek Four boils down to. You've got kind of this eco message very much in the background. Of this episode. Yeah. Do you know, like, were the negotiations supposed to be hashing out, like, an eco message? Or were the negotiations about, I mean, do you know if that had more of an eco message when it uh, when it was initially yeah, no, a story? I, I see what you're saying. I, I don't know the details about that. What I do know is just that uh, the the focus was on 
Odon as the deliberator. Okay. You know, it, it was on just the idea, sort of like when you go back to Loud as a Whisper, just, just the idea that this guy has a process and he tries to make two sides see, uh, you know, see each other for the people that they are and, and, and make them come to a resolution. It wasn't about <laughs> hammering out the, the right or wrong. Okay. Of, so even uh, if this episode had been about an ecological fight, it still mm-hmm. wouldn't have been an eco episode. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. That's that my understanding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there may be another draft that is very different, but um, yeah. But if it's not the Save the Whales movie or the mm-hmm. Save the Whales episode, the, that is something that Star Trek does do from time to time. It'll just sort of float the topic out there and say, oh, yeah, the, this thing that you're talking about now, this other planet in the future is talking about it as well. Yeah. So, so, so there you go. It's a real thing. And I, I, I think that's sort of a clever way of doing it without yeah. just hitting you over the head. Without being bonk bonk on the head, you might say. One might say bonk bonk on the head. Yes. Yeah. Several yeah. times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that this episode is, is a great exploration of love, the nature of love and, and what that actually means to the individuals who are in love. I thought there was actually a good parallel here to metamorphosis from the original series. You know, the, the form of that being something that was in love with Zephyr and Cochran and, and not really able to reveal itself or its intention hmm. until later, you know, until it, it turned into that other form. Well, it never actually revealed itself to Zephram Cochran until it ended up in... Until, um, yeah, until it was... Until it ended up inhabiting Miss, her, Miss Ellie? Yeah. Is that, was yeah. that her name? No, it was, <laughs> right. Ellie, it was Ellie something. Miss Ellie was from Dallas. It was Ellie that, something yes. from uh, from uh, Andy Griffith. Yeah. If somebody else sees that, where Zephram Cochran didn't. I mean, there's a, there's a, mm. there's a difference here. I kind of get what you're saying, although I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that Odon lies so readily about all of this stuff. He lies to the mm. representative of the planet about being the son of Odon rather than the symbiont. And then, you know, that that really makes his argument to Beverly, hey, I'm just two beings like everybody on my planet. You didn't tell me you were one being. So see, it's the same thing. That's mm-hmm. just, that's just mm-hmm. not true. I mean, yeah. whether yeah. it's because, and, and, and look, if you go science fiction-y, there was a role-playing game years ago that had changelings in it, and I guess this is something that might turn up in Star Trek again someday as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, there were these changelings, and they could basically be anything. They had sort of a gooey look normally, mm-hmm. but they, mm-hmm. could, they could transform themselves into just about anything or anyone. And so they were hunted almost to extinction in this role-playing game because you couldn't know. I mean, unless all these things were dead, you couldn't know that the person you were talking to is actually the person that you're talking to. Right? Mm. It mm-hmm. could be somebody pretending to be them. Maybe this is the reason the Trill have never said who they actually are. Because we actually just saw in this episode how a Trill could be second in command or first, uh, first officer of a starship. Which mm-hmm. I guess means a Trill could also be captain of a starship, which I guess means they could also be president of the Federation or they could be anybody. So maybe there's a reason the Trill have kept all this quiet. Right, right. But, I mean, I, I don't – I'm having trouble seeing the metamorphosis thing because the metamorphosis thing, I mean, that thing was what it was and it was also in love. Yeah. The Trill here, this guy, knows what he is and is, is doing nothing about letting anybody else know. In fact, apparently the whole race is like, hey, by the way, if you leave the planet, sort of keep it to yourself that you're a symbiont because <laughs> <laughs> we don't really want the galaxy to know. Well, I did really wonder about that because the the thought that these beings have evolved over however many thousands or millions of years to mm-hmm. be that, um, you know, he, he basically says it to Beverly. Well, you know, you wouldn't think to bring it up that you are one being just because that's who you are. That's right. how you are. Right. But by the same token, the trill shouldn't be necessarily hiding that, that that's what they are, you know, particularly if they are members of the Federation or they've had this sort of uh, uh, at least Federation contact on a on a deep level. Yeah. Um, just having medical information uh, of any sort is is going to be helpful. Yeah. You know, um, it, it seems like the kind of thing that would actually come up. Oh, well, see, humans, we, we got a heart here and we got lungs here and we got a stomach here and the trill. Oh, OK, well, you got a heart here and lungs here. Oh, and you got a you got a thing <laughs> there that's doing all the thinking for you. Who's that little guy? So, yeah. 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 Okay. All of the so, trill are pregnant. 
Right. Apparently. Right. I, I don't with know. A, yeah, with a giant sea cucumber. <laughs> yeah, I guess, um, I guess you so. Know. It's like one of those yeah. little things from Star Trek Two. Right. Well, I, I think the thing about metamorphosis that, that uh, I came back to is that thematically there's this idea that um, the, the love that these beings have Mm-hmm. That it is not limited by, or at least we as the audience are led to think should not be limited by their physical form. Um, the, the the being in Metamorphosis was sort of desperately in love with Zephram Cochran. Zephram Cochran was offended at the idea that this this being was sort of seeing him as that until he could get past it and get to the being in a human female form. Right. And, you know, we we might be able to to talk about that, but I think this this is another ball of wax here in in the respect that you know w- we've talked about whether or not Star Trek could or should or how they would approach the idea of of homosexuality, um, and this has been an ongoing debate in Star Trek for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I was asking myself, should we think? that there is anything homophobic about Beverly's reaction to the female trill at the end. Um, And I thought, you know, Beverly isn't required to make any sort of political statement about who she dates or who she falls in love with or, or hangs out with as a friend. She is allowed to have preferences, Mm -hmm. you know, if if that trill lived in uh, a being that was a six foot tall squid, um, she she has every right to say, you know, my my preference is that the person that I date and marry potentially um, does not look like a six foot tall squid. It's just something I, I sort of can't get past. No. Um, Dude, why not Zoidberg? Why not Zoidberg? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but I wondered if um, if there was anything at all, you know, I, I felt like by the time we got to the end of this episode, um, there was only one way for this to go with the trill going from one body to another body that, that Beverly was having certainly strong reservations about because she recognized that body as someone else. And I thought, well, the only way for this to go at the end is to have the trill go into something or somebody else that is completely the opposite of what she wants. And in this case, it happened to be a a female. Now she sort of, she sort of rationalized it by saying, I don't know what else you might turn into. What, What if a year goes by and then it's another, and then another year goes by and it's another, how long do these symbiotic relationships last? We don't really know, but, uh, but they, they seem to be pretty fragile in, in some respect. Um, so she has an out in that respect to say that emotionally she can't handle the idea of this being jumping from one body to another and and her not having any way of knowing unless unless you go to their home planet and Beverly gets to walk through maybe the the trill. I don't know if they have like a Catalog. nursery or something for these <laughs> and say, I like the look of that one. Hey, next time, hmm. why don't you grab that body? Yeah, except I don't get the impression that they're nearly as fragile as you think they are. I mean, he was able to to plausibly tell them, yeah, no, the last trail that was here was my dad, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if he hadn't blown up in the shuttle, then or if he hadn't gotten you know hit in the shuttle, then he he yeah. and Beverly theoretically could have lived out what would for Beverly have been a natural life, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then she passes away, and then he quickly jumps into another body, I suppose, or you know, waits until his his host body is about to die, and then yeah. and goes away. Yeah, I mean, there there's so many things about this episode that that are odd to me. I don't think it's homophobic of her to not be open to a homosexual relationship herself. There's a difference mm-hmm. between homophobia and, as you say, just like, yeah, it's not really not really for me. Yeah, it's about our preference. Yeah. I, I, there are a couple of things that I wondered. I mean, first of all, I, I guess I do wonder when is it a, a person's responsibility or a race's responsibility to tell you everything about themselves? Uh, like mm-hmm. like we, mm-hmm. we marveled at the fact that the Federation didn't know about Pon Far yeah, right, um, right. all the way back in the original series. But apparently it's never been an issue. The first time it actually became an issue was in that episode. And so, you know, I, and we were talking, I can't even remember, 
Oh, it's because as we record this, we just hit the anniversary of Star Trek V. Mm-hmm. And somebody mm-hmm. suggested that we go back and listen to the thing in Star Trek V, and we talked about the fact that that Spock revealed things on a need-to-know basis, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they never talked about Ponfar. Okay, that's fine, because nobody's needed to know about that to this point. Uh, once, what's his name, <laughs> whose name totally <laughs> escapes me right now, the guy that the show's about, the Trill. Yes. What's Odon. his name? Odon. Good yes. Lord, what is wrong with me? <laughs> Once Odon enters into a relationship or even thinks he might be entering into a relationship with, uh, with, with Beverly, that's probably the time to maybe tell her a couple of things. I mean, you either say, look, I'm on this ship for 12 days. I want them to be an awesome 12 days. Let's not talk about anything past these 12 days. Or if you think that there's going to be a relationship, then you start to say, hey, by the way, I'm like, I'm I'm two people. No, I don't just mean sometimes I have mood swings. I mean, I'm literally two people. There's the guy you see in front of you, and then watch what I can do with my tummy. Right? Yeah, right, right, um, right. Th- the thing that I, I, I hate about this episode, and, and not enough that I don't watch or anything like that, but I'm having mm-hmm. trouble making a real-world analog with any sort of authority. Mm. Like, I wondered... I don't, I don't, I don't have the proper terminology, and, and I know you and I have actually been called out for using the terminology incorrectly. So let me just start mm-hmm. by saying I know that I don't know what I'm talking about, and this is actually part of the problem that I have with this episode. Let's say you come home one day, and your parent or your spouse was wearing clothes and carrying themselves in a manner different from the gender that you knew them as, or that okay. you know you sort of presented you know growing up. So you come home, and dad's wearing a dress, right? Yeah, that would be jarring. Or, or mom is, you know, sporting a mustache. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what the analogs are. I don't, and I'm not trying to make light of it. What I'm saying is, you come into that situation, that would be an incredibly jarring thing, and yet they are still the same person. They look different. They're no longer exactly what you knew, or what you thought you knew, but they're still exactly, you know, who you knew. And even if that yeah. doesn't feel like what's going on with the trill, because my assumption is that the person in this situation that I just made up wouldn't have known, you know, or maybe had tried to sort of fight that, which I've had. I, there are people in my family who were homosexual and knew that they were homosexual and tried not to be. I mean, everything from I just don't want to be to going to church camps that tried to change it. Right. Yeah. My yeah. assumption is, you know, uh, generally speaking, somebody who becomes and I don't even like the terms, like I say, but like a man who is who is suddenly, you know, out in the world as a woman uh, past a certain point. My assumption is they either didn't realize or didn't want to know for a very long time. None of that is the case with Odon. He knew exactly mm. who or what he was. Um, and, you know, not to not to be all Seinfeld about it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing mm. wrong with either yeah, of them, right. except right. that Odon was lying. I mean, the trill as a race, as a race are, are um, if they're not lying, they're not being completely forthcoming. And and that's – it's fine it, that you don't, except if you come to a place where somebody might need to know, then you should. I don't think everybody needs to walk around saying everything about themselves. I mean, because this can this could also go to, like, what's your kink? <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't have to wear everything that you are on your sleeve. You don't have to be out. I mean, you can be how you want to be, but if you start entering into relationships where that stuff might actually matter to somebody else – uh, then, then you should probably you should probably uh, talk about that or address it. And yet, you still don't have to tell everybody. I mean, he yeah. could have he could have told you know Beverly once he started getting serious. Hey, if you could just sort of keep this between you and me, look what I can do with my tummy. Um, <laughs> you know, and maybe she would have, and maybe she would have been okay with it. Uh, she had a right to know, I think. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. This is something that's got to come up at least by the third date. <laughs> You'd think so. Really Especially does. if you're like, hey, what do you think she would think about uh, leaving her career and everyone she knows and coming to live with me? Okay, really, if you're asking her boss that question, mm-hmm. uh, you, you might actually want to ask her, uh, say, hey, what would you think if suddenly I looked like somebody completely different? No, I'm not thinking of getting a haircut, even though I should. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no, I mean, right. I might look like somebody completely different. Now, I will say. I did point out to my wife as we were watching this episode that, mm-hmm. like, this is a great training for her for when I get my robot body. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, well. <laughs> she, she seemed really pleased that I brought that up. In the words of the Great Blue Song, the trill is gone. 
time now to sort out what messages and ideas were left in its wake. All right, Ken Ray, host Ken Ray, and whoever <laughs> else is living inside there. Hello. Uh, <laughs> we want to hear your final summation of the host. And uh, first of all, whether or not this episode stands up. So uh, how do you feel about does the host hold up? Yeah, I think I, I think so. I mean, again, I, I feel like there's a good chance that I displayed a tremendous amount of ignorance uh, the last uh, segment. And I will, I guess, continue to do so here. I mean, it gave me a lot to think about. It made me wonder about real world analogs. Mm. Um, it's also I mean, it, it's a great Gates McFadden episode. It really yeah. is. I like yeah. this Gates McFadden much more than the one in Data's Day. I mean, it, it was sort of fun seeing her be playful in Data's Day, and yes, it was neat to see that she could dance, but um, there's more range uh, for her. There's not a tremendous amount of range in this episode, but this is an area that we've not actually seen her go, seen her character go, it doesn't seem right. to me, or at least not as fully. So so that was that was great. And the background seemed plausible. The whole, you know, the the whole uh, negotiation thing between the two planets. I like the fact that they, you know, sort of drop a little knowledge on you in the background, mm-hmm. or at least drop some things to think about in the background. But that's not the bonk bonk on the head message. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would I would say it holds up. What about you? Yeah, it's definitely up there. You know, um, it, there's great character development. And there's a very Star Trek feel to all of this when it comes to exploring strange new life and ultimately forcing us to look at ourselves. That's Mm -hmm. the great arc here for Beverly. She's got to examine what she thinks love is and who she thinks she's in love with. And like I said, the the thing that I love here is that it all plays out in a, a plausible, for science fiction, a plausible adult way. These are people dealing with real emotions here, e- even if the context is the the fantastical science fiction construct. The one the one way that I might fault it, and I think it's sort of what you're talking about. And maybe it would have been better if they had, you know, if if he had ended up being Bem in the end. Except we're supposed to think that they're going to be some sort of humanized, you know, or yeah, sort of. Mm fairly human looking thing right mm-hmm. would have been better if it had been zoidberg in a way because then we could have addressed the question of okay but what if because then the question could have been okay well what if it had not been a bug-eyed monster but what if it had been a woman oh well then we could really think about that it, it's sort of a bummer that we're at the end of the 48 minutes we have to find a way to break this cleanly and then somebody said well obviously beverly is not going to be in love with a woman so so that's how we end it. We'll just we'll yeah. we'll make it so that no way she's going to be in a relationship. Oh. Yeah. I mean that's that's kind of a that that's it's it's kind of a bummer. I know you couldn't do the bug-eyed monster thing, although maybe it would have been better to. Although then there's too much of a chance that it, you know, devolves into comedy at the end. Mm-hmm. A roll of the eyes when, you know, <laughs> the thing with the eight tentacles leaves. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing that's difficult about this episode is that I, I don't think there is anything intentionally homophobic about it right. at all. Right. But when you when you have that ending, then you sort of say, well, is there something unintentional here that feels a little out of step for Star Trek? But again, it, it, Beverly as a character, we and we're applying these sort of real world traits to this character. Beverly as a person would get to make that call. Beverly yeah. would get to say, these are my preferences. This is where I can go or can't go in a relationship. Even if I can accept the idea that this is a little, you know, slug living inside a body. Right. Um, and and be OK with that at all. Uh, when maybe she could wrap her head around that being Odon in the first Odon body that we saw. But but there is something about that that I think you do have to address to say, well, when we get to the end and it is a woman and Beverly turns her down, well, like you said, we know that we can't have Beverly carry on a relationship anyway with a guest star. Right. (laughs) That's sort of the reality of the production of the show. See, what would be be fascinating to study, though, is if she were in a relationship for quite a while and then all of a sudden there was that different body and she had to get to know like that. Yeah. That's a nutty idea. I I can't even imagine a a, a storyline like that in any (laughs) Star Trek ever happening ever. Ever. Yeah. You know, I mean, here's the thing. It is a lot. What did you say in the recap? Beverly can't even... 
she can't even. Yeah, okay, so she first... She can't even. Okay, not only has she had to deal with the fact that this thing has been in three different bodies, but she also had to, she also has to deal with the lie of the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing really was predicated. I mean, if he's thinking rest of my life stuff, this is the kind of thing he ought to tell her. And you can make this... And, and wow, maybe it is bad that she just totally shuts her down at the end. Because then I'm thinking about, okay, let's say you were in love with somebody and you don't find out until you're almost married that they are, they were raised a religion that you were raised to hate that religion. Or, or let's say mm -hmm. they're a different race and they look just like you, but it turns out they're part this thing. And yeah. you, you would hope that if they were you know part that thing, but you're in love with them, well, then what do you care? Stuff like that doesn't matter. But then, you know, on the other hand, there are biological imperatives that some people feel that others don't. I mean, she, I, I, I can't figure out how to say this without being crass. She may need to be held by a man. I mean, hmm. there may be a thing in her that she feels like, yeah, no, I, I, I like guys. I mean, it's like you said earlier, mm -hmm. she gets yeah. to choose. Yeah. I like guys or I like girls. I mean, it'd be just as bad, I suppose, to try to force somebody who's gay to be like, no, 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 you like women. Mm -hmm. Young man, you like women, even though you think you don't. I mean, it would be... I guess it would be wrong to assume that if it's not a choice, it's not a choice. And yet yeah. we're so, ah, ah, this is, well, but, this, but, it's just like a giant, ah, this is getting messier the further we go into talking about it. But, but this is what's cool because it, when we talk about messages, morals, meanings here, the, the thing that I find most fascinating about this is the sort of challenging question at the center of the story, which is whether or not we can continue to love someone for their personality Mm -hmm. despite their outward appearance. You know, we as humans, Beverly admits this, we, we as humans have certain limitations on how we build that love map in our heads. Well, we... We, we, we've all, you know, we all see the other person, we, we listen to the other person, we get to know that personality. There are a multitude of facets that allow us to fall in love with somebody. But what if that changes, you know, um, whether it's by, by choice, by design, by accident, whatever that may be, this is still a really tough question to grapple with. And I don't think this story, uh, even for one second, says to the audience, well, we've got it resolved for you. Yeah. You know, it, 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 there's not an easy solution here. It says, hey, you know what's weird about love is that we all readily accept and we all tell each other that we fall in love with people because of who they are, because of uh, their personalities and the way they make us feel. But there's also this other part of that that is sort of the physical representation of that person. And what happens when you change this? You know, you, you were sort of working that area of talking about, well, uh, what if somebody is transgendered or, uh, or a transvestite or whatever that may be that changes your outward perception of that person? Mm -hmm. Well, some people may very easily be able to step into that new role and say, well, yeah, I, I love that person for that personality. That's what I get out of it. And I can look past these outward traits and there are other people who may not be able to get past that and i don't think that this story is necessarily casting a judgment on either way it's just saying that this is a complicated mess of human emotion <laughs> and and everybody is going to have a different way to deal with it it's interesting uh, though that beverly says maybe one day we won't be so limited in the way we love mm -hmm. i mean she actually sort of sees seems to see it as a failing yeah, that she can't yeah. get that she can't get past it, or she's not willing to try to get past it. Which is, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, it almost seems like it almost seems like Star Trek is saying, "Yeah, this is actually how it ought to be." Um, but if you're not that way right now, well, you're no worse than Beverly Crusher, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there's a message. I We're guess no so. worse than Beverly Crusher. Well, no, but I mean, I mean. <laughs> We all want to be the best that we can be, and we all want to be, you know, whatever our ideals are. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's not there yet. I mean, she seems to say that her ideal would be, yeah, I love you for who you are, and who you are is who you are inside, not who you are on the outside. Right. Um, but I'm not there. Yeah. So, I don't know. I guess it's yeah. aspirational. Although, again, I mean, I'm always kind of bummed when we get to the 24th century and we find out that people are still sort of like, oh, I wish I were a better person. We always want the 24th century people to be the best people they can possibly be. And when we come across somebody in the 24th century who's like, yeah, I know I should be better, but I'm not gonna. 
it's yeah. kind of a it's kind of a little bit of a bummer. I don't even know that any of that though is the message. And we spend a lot of time sort of uh, in the does the episode hold up part. Uh, what about messages, sir? Yeah, um, listen to your enemy. Uh, we we kind of got the same lesson of diplomacy with Riva and Lados of Whisper. So I, I brought that up earlier. Um, so I, I think there was there was something there about that. But um, I, you know, like I said, to, to me, this episode is not so much about the message. It's not about the bonk bonk on the head. It's about the question: mm-hmm. what What is love? What does it mean to be in love with someone? And can that be changed? How do we adapt to that? Um, because there are all kinds of minor adaptations that we make, but but is there a limit? And, and Beverly found her limit in this case. Um, and, and again, I think what's good about this episode is that it doesn't it doesn't really firmly come down on one side to say that Beverly is right or Beverly is wrong. It's just this is the way it is, and she is a person who gets to make that decision because it's her life and her relationship. Um, so I, I like the idea of, uh, of an episode that, that challenges the audience up to a point and does this a couple of times. I love, like I said, that it, it did it with Riker by, by putting this being into Riker. Mm-hmm. But then, like I said, at the end, I felt like we, we knew we sort of had to get there with the, the final form being something that Beverly just could not reconcile. So I'm much more interested in in the challenge of this episode than than necessarily a message. But I think the there is a message in there, and like I said, maybe the the diplomatic lesson was uh, one that I picked up. What about you? Yeah, the only like messages that I think you can take away and say Star Trek was definitely saying this are what I've sort of referred to um, as as gems. I mean, it's not what we are looking for, but it's like stuff that you sort of found while while you were there. Yeah, in a way. Um, Speak softly, Governor. Those who cannot hear an angry shout may strain to hear a whisper, is what um, mm-hmm. Will O'Don, I suppose, <laughs> uh, uh, told, uh, told the governor, which is great. I mean, so often if somebody comes at you with an argument and they come at you argumentatively with that argument, mm-hmm. um, you're going to dig in your heels or somebody else will. I mean, maybe it's best to not, you know, to not start the conversation by yelling maybe it's better instead to start the conversation you know in conversation mm-hmm. um so i love that the uh speak softly and and people might might listen as opposed or might try to listen as opposed mm-hmm. to just you know closing their ears and going la 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 <laughs> and the other one i liked was um i love the way odon says that the competing moods made peace decades ago um their representatives trade places they they walked a mile in the other's shoes they yeah. basically made themselves know the situation of the other before they, you know, decided anything. A lot of times we see this, and I think occasionally it looks publicity stunty. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's mm-hmm. a thing uh, going around Silicon Valley right now. Can you eat on two dollars a day? Um, and it's a Silicon Valley thing because you know at the end of those at the end of that time they get to go back to eating whatever the heck they want. But I mean, it's it. But it's a good thing to try. I mean, and and I I haven't. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that's a good thing to try. I'm taking, uh, holding up those kinds of things as examples to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Uh, we kind of need our our uh, actual leaders to do that. I think we need uh, mm-hmm. elected representatives to do that. Maybe judges as well. I don't know. I mean, there is definitely something to be said for really thinking about things. But if you don't know the experience, you won't know the experience. And if you're holding power over somebody else maybe you ought to try to know a thing or two, like literally know uh, what they're going through. Grok the fullness, if you will, <laughs> as opposed to just, you know, reading a sheet of paper saying, well, that looks terrible for them, but it looks really bad for these guys too. So I'm going to go with these guys. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I, I loved that idea. Yeah. Um, as far as the interpersonal relationship thing, though, that the episode was actually about, yeah, I don't, I kind of want to apply message to it. But the problem that I have is this whole thing starts with deception. Yeah. Odon knew something that he should have shared with her. And so you, you remember how bad Jordy made Leah Brahms feel for the way Jordy treated Leah Brahms? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of yeah. feel like if we fault Beverly at all here, we're not exactly victim shaming, but she mm. went into this eyes wide open. And the problem is the thing that she should have known was being hidden by the person that she was going there with. So I kind of, I really, I kind of can't fault her for anything that happens because 
it's possible that he would have, you know, the, that first night in 10 forward when they met across the room, he might have said, you know, funny story. Look what I can do with my tummy. And she might have been, what do I care? I, I love you no matter who you are. And so then when he turns up in somebody else, she'd be like, well, and for a penny and for a pound. Yeah. I, so, I mean, yeah. I anything that we struggle with in this episode and that she struggles with in this episode, I sort of have to be like, okay, but let's start at the very beginning, which is where Odon should have started. So sure. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I do want to, I, I, I'm not normally a, I don't feel like I'm normally so, Hey, listen, if I offended you at all, I'm sorry, but I want to be clear. Nothing that I said, I, I hope nothing I said will ever be taken in this episode as dismissive or, or, you know, making fun, except for the parts where I was obviously making fun. <laughs> but <laughs> nothing about this situation is easy to me. And nothing about the situation, honestly, is not something that I know a, a, a tremendous amount about from personal experience. Thank goodness I'm not making decisions for other people uh, on it. But if it seems like I'm being dismissive at all, I'm absolutely not. And, um, yeah, not exactly apologizing for what I just said, but I want to make it clear. I'm not, not trying to be... Uh, dismissive in any way i don't think i have to worry about it. i mean the, the, this episode is full of challenges it's full of interesting ideas and like i said they're not trying to force feed you an answer yeah so i, I think that's what's really effective uh, about the show and and that's why i think you know we can both say that those as an episode but also those challenges are are what make this particular episode really hold up um so with that said mission log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trekmovie.com. Next week, The Mind's Eye. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Promotional consideration for Mission Log provided by a green dishwashing liquid from the 20th century. Green dishwashing liquid from the 20th century, softens hands while you talk over your love life. And transmission.